the community. It's 7 o'clock at night. That's right, 1,900 hours, and you're listening to the Polo Saguero Show, where the heat is on and we educate our community through interviews with professionals. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Salguero Show. Again, it is nineteen. It is not 1,900 hours. That was from when the show ran on Wednesday evenings. Uh, but we are now on Saturday afternoons from 3 to 5. We will be here until 5 o'clock. Uh, today's segment, we're going to start off by um, doing uh, a segment on Chinese uh, poetry and literature. Uh, this was, you know, the other day, it kind of sparked my interest because the, uh, a few weeks ago we had Professor uh, Francisco Fagundes on who we, we talked a little about Portuguese literature and uh, kind of the books he's uh, worked with and written. And so I was thinking about Chinese poetry because when I was at uh, George Washington University, I had met a wonderful professor there, Jonathan Chaves. And so I invited uh, Professor Chaves on to discuss some of uh, Chinese poetry, some of his books, his work, and uh, what he has done thus far. We always stayed in contact, so it's really uh, nice, and I think he should be with us currently. Professor Chaves, are you there? I just realized you are my student. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hadn't realized, of course, it's the same Paolo Salguero. How many can there be? Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, this is amazing. I'm very proud of you to have this show. It's great. Thank you, Professor. Yeah, we do it. Uh, we do it uh, uh, once a week, and the goal is to kind of just educate the community through interviews. And so I'll do. Uh, sometimes we do educational segments, or I'll have uh, like a nonprofit agency on, and we kind of discuss the resources and services available. And then we kind of just like push it out through social media to try and reach uh, another audience. You know. That's great. So uh, I'd like to thank you again for uh, joining us. And uh, for those that don't know, uh, Professor Chaves, like I said, is a professor of Chinese literature at George Washington University. Uh, some of the courses he teaches are uh, Intro to Classical uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese Literature in Translation, which is the one I uh, took, uh, Poetry of the Tang and uh, a Song Periods. And then there's also a prose seminar, uh, Readings of the major in uh, Chinese language and literature. It's so, And uh, Professor Chaves received his uh, PhD in Chinese literature from Columbia University. So, Professor, uh, first, how's everything been? Uh, everything's just fine. Wonderful. And uh, so for some of our audience, could you give us a little bit of uh, kind of a, a bio on yourself and kind of experience and um, kind of how you got involved with the uh, Chinese literature? Yes, I would be glad to, to the extent that I can, uh, because I, I myself don't fully understand how it came about, but I go back to a neighbor of ours when I was growing up in Brooklyn, New York, that, which is where I was born, uh, in 1943, and when I was something like 12, 13 years old, a neighbor gave me a book called The Uses of the Past by uh, Herbert Muller, a historian. And that book just opened up my eyes to the fact that there were other civilizations in the world beside the Western civilization. And uh, I immediately felt a need, not just a desire, an actual drive to read the literature of these other civilizations to see what they were all about. And uh, 
by the time I was 15, 16 years old, I was just reading things from India, and one day in the library I stumbled upon a book called Translations from the Chinese by Arthur Whaley, who I would later come to realize is the greatest uh, scholar and translator of Chinese and Japanese literature uh, of the modern era, a great, great man, an Englishman, who had published these translations originally in 1919. So here I was in the 1950s reading this book, and I felt as if I was meeting my soulmates. I couldn't believe it. They were describing nature in particular, uh, and I think it was the nature poetry that really pulled me in, and in such a manner that it was as if they were reading my mind and my heart and my soul. They were Chinese. I was American. They were writing in the 8th and 9th century A.D., and I was living in the 20th century A.D. Uh, and now, by the way, I realize that right now there are some young listeners out there for whom the 20th century is ancient history. It's not, folks. All right? <laughs> yesterday. But at any rate, I knew that I, at some point I wanted to get closer and be able to read these poems in the originals, as wonderful as Arthur Whaley's translations were. So when I went to college at Brooklyn College, where the tuition, by the way, was zero, if you were a Brooklyn resident, and I was, zero dollars for a great college education. That's right. They, Brooklyn College had and has today some of the best people uh, in academia, although I understand they do charge tuition now for Brooklyn residents. Anyway, my advisor there said, you keep talking about this Chinese poetry. Why don't you study Chinese? We have it right here at Brooklyn College, which I didn't even realize. So I started studying Chinese at that time at the age of about 18. Later on, when I graduated uh, and I was wondering what to do in the future, I realized that it was going to be graduate school uh, because school was the one thing I was really good at. I was terrible at everything else. Mind you, it's not because I loved school. I actually hated school. And when I tell this to my students, they say, oh, yeah, right, you're a college professor and you hated school. Yeah, I was, and I did. Uh, but I decided that it has to be graduate school, and I might as well study what I love the most. And I was in love with a great many things, all of them being art, literature, philosophy, religion, in a word, what is called the humanities. But I picked the Chinese poetry because it corresponded to my own personality in the widest range of ways. The feeling for nature, the sense of humor, which is fantastic in Chinese poetry. And I just I decided that's what I would do. So I went to Columbia University, got a master's degree, and then a Ph.D. in Chinese language and literature in 1971. And that meant, of course, an academic career. And here's another strange thing about my path. I did not say I want to be a college professor. In fact, the thought of getting up and speaking in front of people is, was not attractive to me at all. 
and I realized that was part of the job, but I couldn't think of anything else I could do with a Ph.D. in Chinese literature. <laughs> you know, uh, there's, no, there's no other job you can do with such a degree. So I kind of ended up painting myself into the corner of academia, and as I started doing it, I realized in the course of years, it was a slow realization, that I was actually enjoying it. In fact, that it was great, because I could read and write as much as I wanted. I had plenty of time for that. And I was, and the teaching aspect of it uh, was tough at first, but after a while I began to realize that I was actually a ham. This was an opportunity to perform, you know, to get up there and tell jokes and essentially say anything I wanted to, as long as it had some connection to Chinese literature. And that actually was not as hard as it might seem, because literature is the one subject that is not only about this, not only about that, it's about everything. You can't name anything in human experience that cannot go into fiction, poetry, so everything, in a sense, is related to what you're teaching. Anyway, that, that is how I got to the point of being a professor of Chinese literature. At first, when I started teaching in 1970, people did not know anything about China. They did not think about China. I mean, people in general, including educated people. When people would ask me, what do you do? I would say, oh, I, I, I'm a professor of Chinese literature. And that would be a big, fat conversation stopper. That what? You're a professor of what? Today, when I say I'm a professor of Chinese literature, people say, oh, yeah, I was in China last week. <laughs> you know, everyone wants to go there now for business purposes, for, for one reason or the other. Sure. Um, Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with uh, Professor Jonathan Chaves. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're talking about Chinese literature, and we're going to get more in-depth in to uh, kind of what's been written in Chinese poetry, and then kind of we'll talk about some of uh, Professor Chaves' books. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. On February 14th, 2019, the Attleboro Public Library will host a Valentine's Day concert from 6.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. The Valentine's Day concert will take place in the Marble Lobby and feature singers from Coastline on tour. Selections will include Witchcraft, Love Letters, Almost Like Being in Love, Can't Buy Me Love, and other popular love songs. Registration is requested by the library to ensure that there is enough seating. To register, you can contact Library Director Christine Johnson by calling 508-222-0157 or via email at cjohnson at salesinc.org. Are you one of the 30 million Americans who skip breakfast every day? We don't need to remind you that skipping breakfast can have a detrimental effect on your health. The Breakfast Place, located at 187 Pleasant Street, across from the Shell gas station, has been serving their customers meals made to order for over 30 30 years using vegetables from local farms and cage-free eggs. Owner Casey Darconti opens the breakfast place every day from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. for breakfast and lunch. And for those on the go, all meals are available for takeout. The Attleboro Fire Department face off against Seekonk Police and Fire Department in a hockey tournament for our former firefighter. Join AACS this week as we showcase the second annual Capraro Cup, an event to raise money for former firefighter Dave Capraro's battle with a lung transplant. You can watch this program and all of our quality programs from around the area in high definition on the AACS Roku channel. 
Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sargero Show. Uh, we will be here until 5 o'clock today. We're talking with uh, George Washington University Professor Jonathan Chaves, uh, discussing Chinese uh, literature and poetry. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I, re you know, we, we were just before the break, we were mentioning of, uh, you know, how China wasn't really spoken of or uh, the poetry. And I remember being in class and uh, <laughs> Professor Chaves once said, um, you know, what is everyone majoring in and whatnot, and, you know, with Chinese literature, and then, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I want to be a lawyer, and I want to be a doctor, and he goes, everybody wants to be a lawyer and doctor, you know, you can, there's so many other opportunities, especially in language, which uh, there really are, because there's the translation part of, uh, of the language, is writing, but uh, uh, in any case, uh, Professor Chaves, currently, what's out there right now for Chinese, um, uh, poetry in general in terms of its literature and uh, kind of what are the stuff that's uh, translated as of right now? Uh, a very interesting question. Um, as a matter of fact, when it comes to Chinese poetry in particular, um, I already mentioned the great Arthur Whaley, uh, and he was, uh, as I said, publishing really the first translations of Chinese poetry that were both scholarly and enjoyable in English. Um, th that was in 1919 and after. He continued publishing throughout the first half of the 20th century, and his translations brought Chinese poetry to a wider readership, in other words, not limited to academia. Uh, I knew when I started working toward my Ph.D., and then after I got it, that I wanted to do something similar. I did not want only to write scholarly articles and books with lots of footnotes that would be read primarily only by my colleagues. I've done that sort of thing. I, you know, I've more or less earned my Ph.D. Uh, credentials in that way. But I also wanted to read a broader uh, reach, rather, a broader readership of people who love good poetry and don't necessarily want to spend the time that's involved in learning classical literary Chinese, the language in which it was written. So I have been working on that, and I'm very happy to say that there is a large readership outside of academia. Uh, many of the people are themselves interested in writing poetry. There are a great many American poets right now, to name just one particularly outstanding example, uh, Charles Rossiter, who uh, writes out of Bennington, Vermont, and uh, he and other associates of his are great admirers of Chinese poetry in translation, and uh, they actually contacted me <clears throat> about two years ago, they were putting out a book of their own poems called In the Spirit of Tao Chen. The Tao Chen is one of the great Chinese poets who lived from 365 to 427 A.D., way, way back. And they had read his poetry in translation, and, they, and then they read Whaley, and they also read my own translations. And they wanted to know if I would write a blurb for this book, which I did, and I said, these poets are breathing in the breath of the Chinese poets and breathing it out again to merge with the breath of America. 
That is, it's a spirit, a spiritual thing, breath, if you will, that is conveyed, carried from the poets who are talking about the heart, the mind, the soul of the poet and the world around him and the interaction between the two. And we, are, we read it now in a completely different place, completely different language, and it's, there's still enough there to carry through. Some people say um, translation is impossible. You can't do it. Well, if by translation, literary translation, you mean a perfect rendition of the original, of course it's impossible. The question is whether you can carry over enough so that the good, the success, outweighs the failure. And the answer to that, I think, is yes. So there are now a number of translators of Chinese poetry. Some of them are academic, some of them are not. And there's quite a bit of good work that is uh, being done getting out there and being read by a, a, a more sizable readership than you might think. Absolutely, because that's one thing I always uh, wondered too. Was that because I know when I read, um, you know, some things in Portuguese, and I'm like, you know, if I was to translate this exactly, it really wouldn't make too much sense just because of the way it translates. So you, know, I always wondered how much of, uh, you know, translated poetry is actually exact, or how much of it is, um, you know, kind of changed just in, just enough to get the uh, the picture out there to the public. Uh, yeah, that that is a process of that is extremely difficult and it is extremely intuitive in fact what you're what you're talking about is nothing less than an artistic practice because there's really not that much difference as i've come to realize between literary translation and artistic creation pure and simple if let's say you sit down to write something that is completely original you still have to make some of the kinds of decisions that you were implying uh, in your question. How, what should I say? How much should I say about it? How should I put it? All of these things are going to hit you right away. It's not going to all come naturally flowing out. In translation, the playing field is reduced in a sense very narrowly because you have an original that you are attempting to convey um, but the procedure remains very similar I'm taking this creation I'm absorbing it and now I am recreating the recreating and creating share similar elements in the case of poetry how much can I convey of the meaning and the answer to that turns out to be quite a bit, almost everything. Question number two, how much can I convey of the linguistic beauty? For example, the original poem rhymes. Do I want to rhyme in English? That's a huge question. Most translators of Chinese poetry, beginning with Arthur Whaley, way back in 1919, and continuing with those working today, myself included, have actually decided not to rhyme. And when uh, educated Chinese readers who know English see our translations, they will all, uh, often say, what happened to the rhyme? 
they are very aware that the original rhymes, how come there's no rhyme? Well, there are two reasons for it. Number one, it's just so hard to do it. Number two, rhyme itself went out of fashion. That's why Whaley didn't rhyme, for example. By 1919, you're starting to get into modernism in English poetry. Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot are about to appear on the scene. Um, and even though somebody like T.S. Eliot sometimes rhymes, he sometimes doesn't. He often doesn't. And most modern poets writing in English uh, are not going to rhyme. They're going to see rhyme as old-fashioned. So if you're going to rhyme your translations, number one, you're making life very difficult for yourself. And number two, you're going against what is the fashion in literature. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, I hadn't thought of it that way. But uh, yeah, it makes sense. Um, so one thing I wanted to make sure we... Uh, um, talk about is uh, one of your books, Every Rock a Universe, uh, The Yellow Mountains and Chinese uh, Travel Writing, which was, uh, I have to admit, you know, I, I told Professor Fagundes this the other day when I had him on that. Uh, my interest in poetry uh, really started in your class because if, if you told me in high school, hey, you're going to meet uh, you know, a, ch a Chinese professor uh, that, uh, and you're going to gain an interest in poetry, I would have been like, you are out of your mind if you think that's going to happen. <laughs> and uh, I really, I, I had zero, you know, I had zero interest in, uh, but then after, you know, what, re what really sparked it was when you were teaching me about um, Portuguese individuals that were translating Chinese poetry. Yes. And well, it turns out that one of the pioneers in the translation of Chinese poetry into European languages was Camilo Passania. He's a Portuguese poet who, as a young man uh, in his 20s, went to Macau, which, of course, the, the Portuguese uh, were, had, had sovereignty over uh, at that time. This is in the 1890s having established themselves there as far back as the 16th century as a consequence of the uh, voyages of Vasco da Gama and then others. And through negotiation with the Chinese government, which at that time was the Ming Dynasty, so-called, which came to an end in 1644, they established a presence there. So uh, Vasanya went to Macau thinking he would visit there for a while, and just fell absolutely in love with the Chinese culture that he now encountered, and remained there until his death, uh, and is buried in Macau. Now, he um, learned enough Chinese, and he also collaborated with other fellow Portuguese who were scholars of Chinese culture, uh, and sat down and did a series of translations of Chinese poems from the Ming Dynasty, in fact, that's the dynasty from 1368 to 1644, into Portuguese. And I was contacted at one point by a contemporary Chinese poet and translator, a wonderful, wonderful man named Gilles de Corvayu in Lisbon, who was familiar with my work. And he um, wanted, he had been looking at these translations by Pisania from uh, Chinese into Portuguese, and he was wondering how accurate they were. So 
I needed to sit down with a colleague who knew Portuguese. I do not. And by the way, despite my name, which looks like the Portuguese name Chaves, is actually not Portuguese or Hispanic at all. It is uh, Chaves, and it comes from a completely different background. I sat down with a colleague of mine and went through some of these poems in Portuguese uh, and found them to be extremely beautiful and extremely accurate. In other words, already before the end of the 19th century and in the early 20th century, Camilo de Passania was doing fine Portuguese translations of Chinese poetry. That's amazing. Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with Professor Jonathan Chaves discussing uh, Chinese literature, poetry, and kind of some uh, uh, a great deal of history. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to discuss uh, one of Professor Chaves' book, um, Every Rocky Universe, The Yellow Mountains, and Chinese Travel Writing. So we're going to take a quick break, stick around, we'll be right back after these messages. Jewish Community Center in Providence will host an environmental fair on Saturday, February 2nd from 7 to 8 p.m. The fair's purpose is to promote a greener environment. The event will present environmental organizations that encourage composting, recycling, gardening, and other green practices. The fair will feature both Rhode Island and Israeli environmental organizations. Amigo Inc. is currently looking for qualified individuals to help fill various positions within the company. Located at 33 Perry Avenue, Amigo is offering full and part-time positions in addition to per diem opportunities. Amigo offers first, second, and third shift availability to help fit your needs and theirs. When you join Amigo, you will help to create a positive client experience for all the individuals we have the privilege of serving on a daily basis. For more information on all positions available, please call 508-455-6200 or visit our website at amigoinc.org. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sargero Show. Again, we'll be here until 5 o'clock. Uh, but right now, we are currently joined with uh, Professor Jonathan Chaves, from, uh, uh, who's a professor at George Washington University, a Chinese uh, professor. Uh, professor Chaves, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your book, Every Rock a Universe, and uh, what motivated you to write this book? That is a subject that had I had been inspired by for decades and decades, and I finally found a way to to um, actually bring it into my work. The Yellow Mountains, Huangshan, were known to me through classical Chinese painting. And I should point out uh, to your listeners that my work has been really half and half between the verbal and the visual arts. Although I'm not a completely trained art historian, I took a good deal of uh, academic courses in Chinese art, and I have been uh, friends and colleagues with Chinese collectors, museum people, and so on. And so a lot of my work is, in fact, uh, on the side of art, specifically painting and calligraphy. Um, there was one painter named Hung Ren who lived in the 17th century, 1610 to 1664. Um, and he lived through the year 1644 when the Ming Dynasty fell to Manchu invaders from the north, a great traumatic event. He withdrew from the world, became a Buddhist monk, and lived in the Yellow Mountains, which are located in the southern part of Anhui province in China. 
You know, this is like a four and a half hour drive plus a lot of climbing and so on from Shanghai, for example. Uh, at that time, Shanghai was a, just a little town, and it was a very, very remote place. Now, he did some paintings inspired by the Yellow Mountains, which are famous for their gaunt, austere, powerful beauty, rock formations. Th- these are granite mountains, by the way, granite rock formations that are breathtakingly beautiful, almost like natural sculptures. You feel as if you're looking directly at the handiwork of God when you look at them. And Hungren's paintings of these scenes absolutely swept me away, in the same way that my first encounter with Chinese poetry did. And I knew that someday I would have to go see the Yellow Mountains. Well, it just happens that a couple of years ago, uh, a wonderful scholar named Joseph Zhang, or Zhang Zining, who was then the curator of Chinese art at the Freer and Sackler Galleries here in Washington, D.C., put on a show of paintings inspired by the Yellow Mountains by Hungren and others, and also included some photographs taken of the Yellow Mountains by a photographer named Wang Wusheng, which were also equally breathtaking with the paintings of Hungren and actually stood up to them and could be shown side by side with them. He asked me to participate by translating some of the poems which were inscribed on the paintings. One of the things that drew me to China so strongly was the link, the intimate connection between poetry and painting, where the painter will inscribe a poem right on his painting, a poem by one of the great writers of the past, or by himself. He's a poet and painter both. Um, I then had an opportunity to go to China, and I met the photographer, Wang Wusheng. We immediately became friends. And now, I have to tell you, I'm a person with a really crabby personality. I don't make friends easily, okay? (laughs) This guy, it's true, yeah. And uh, if you don't believe me, you can call my wife any time. I'll give you my my phone number later, <laughs> and she'll tell you the whole story. Um, somehow or other, this guy and I hit it off. I felt as if he was Hung Ren, the painter, come back to life this time as a photographer. He invited me to go to the Yellow Mountains with him for a full week. It was unbelievable. It was like going to the Yellow Mountains with one of the great painters of the past, except he's a contemporary, and his medium is photography. There was a great experience. Uh, since that time, there was just last fall, just this last fall, there was a wonderful exhibition of Chinese landscape photography at China Institute in New York City, which featured and centered around the work of Wang Wusheng. And uh, I actually went there and gave a presentation. Wang Wusheng himself unexpectedly and, and very unfortunately passed away just as this exhibition was opening. He didn't have a chance to come here and see it, um, which makes me very sad. I feel as if I've lost a great soulmate in him. At any rate, the the connection with the Yellow Mountains uh, has been long standing, and it involves poetry, it involves painting, 
And then the curator of that exhibition I told you about, Joseph Jung, told me about a book from the late 17th century of travel essays written in prose, but you might describe it as prose poetry because it's so beautifully written, about all the different peaks, rock formations, pine trees, and so forth at the Yellow Mountains. And I started, I, he asked me to translate part of it, which I did, and then I realized, why don't I translate the whole thing? I did. And that was published as the book you are describing, Every Rock a Universe, The Yellow Mountains and Chinese Travel Writing. Um, and this book came out and was nominated and then actually won the, an award, the Lucian Strike Award for the best Asian translation of the year, the best translation from any Asian language, uh, which is conferred by the American Literary Translators Association, ALTA. Um, and that was really great, because I never won anything. You know, I'm one of those guys who never wins anything. I would send away for to be a member in the Superman Club, you know, with a little coupon from the back of a comic book, and they never would even write to me. <laughs> I mean, come on. Well, to this day, I'm waiting to learn whether or not I'm actually a member in good standing of the Superman. <laughs> I think but, the award for the book is probably maybe a little bit better than that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, finally, I won something. I was very happy about that. Again, going back to your question at the start, because it is an indication, this is not an association of scholars of China. This is an association of people devoted to good literary translation from whatever language anywhere in the world. Spanish, Portuguese, you know, Turkish, everything. And it means that people are reading this stuff and liking it, they're enjoying it, they're being moved by it. That's my real goal. Oh, absolutely. And, and for any of our view, uh, listeners, um, I mean, even the pictures are really remarkable. I mean, just the cover itself, you can just imagine what it must have been like to be there. Um, I, want, yeah. I wanted to read uh, one poem here, and because uh, it really, it, it's got a pretty deep meaning to it, and it's called The Baby Beneath the Flowers, and it starts with, A child was born. No need to grieve. Our household is so poor. Fate may provide a chance to meet a second mom and dad. Bone torn from the bone, flesh cut from flesh. On earth beneath the flowers, about to part, the mom returns to breastfeed one more time. Then she looks back as sounds of crying fade into the distance. The plants grow wild along the plains. Now lower, now much higher, until a patch of deepest green conceals the child's body. Is, th is this... Is this the? Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Now I was reading it. Is this? Because um, I always want, like, I always feel like every poem can mean something different. Is this essentially um, a family who are too poor for the baby, and they're kind of hoping for a better life for that child? Correct. Correct. That's what it is. It, it's a, it's really it's an act of desperation. They have a child. Um, the poem is actually preceded by a prose preface, which I'll read now uh, to complement it um, before the poem itself begins. A traveler passing by a field of flowers heard the crying of a newborn infant. He sought out the child 
and found inserted in its clothing a piece of paper with a note stating that the child was born on such and such a day of the month, and the parents, realizing that theirs was an impoverished household and could not afford to raise another child, right? They already had children. They, they just couldn't support raising another one, placed it among the flowers in the hope that a passerby might see it and adopt it. It's an act of desperation by a poor family, hoping that the child will at least be adopted. And, and by the way, this is one of a series of poems by Wang Hongdu that are based on actual events. This is not something invented. Wow, it's that's... Kind of, yeah, it's using poetry for what might almost be called a type of reportage or poetic journalism, if you will. Um, and, yeah, this is the, the same man who wrote the prose book about the Yellow Mountains was also a superb poet. This is one of his poems. And when I went to China in the spring of 2011, met with the photographer Wang Hongdu, went to the Yellow Mountains. After I came back down again, I went to the uh, provincial capital of that Anhui province named Hefei, a city, the capital of Anhui province, went to the library there and also to the museum and it was in the museum, actually, that I found the extre- two extremely rare books containing the collected poetry of Wang Hongdu. The poem that you read, that we read together, actually, uh, it was in that book. Wow. So this is newly discovered poetry. You can go online and Google it. You're not going to find it. This is something, this kind of research still needs to be done. And it makes me feel when I do it something like Sherlock Holmes. You know, it's great because you track down. I knew that this man had to have, or I knew that he did have a collection of his poetry. I knew it was very rare. And I looked for it in the Shanghai Museum, uh, not museum, excuse me, library, which is a great institution. They have almost everything. They did not have this. That's like going to the Library of Congress, and guess what? They don't have it. And then I thought, if I go to Anhui Province, the provincial library and the provincial museum, I'm going there anyway for the Yellow Mountains, maybe they'll have it. My friends all said, no way. During the Cultural Revolution, 1966 to 1976, the libraries were, were destroyed or thrown into complete chaos by the Red Guards in their rioting. It was a crazy, insane, tragic time. And you're not going to find anything in the provincial libraries. Well, they were wrong. Lo and behold, my instinct was right. They did have it. It's and so I was able to write the chapter in the book about Wang Hongdu and his poetry, as well as over and above the uh, Yellow Mountains material. That's remarkable. Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with uh, Professor Jonathan uh, Chaves from George Washington University discussing uh, Chinese literature and his book, Every Rock a Universe, The Yellow Mountains, and Chinese Travel Writing. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll get more. Um, we'll have a couple more questions with uh, Professor Chaves, and then um, we'll continue on to our next hour. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. The Richards Memorial Library in North Attleboro will host the Meet the Local Filmmakers event on Saturday, February 9th from 2 to 3 p.m. 
Teens aged 11 to 17 will meet local filmmakers Rob Lee and Christina Ferry and learn what it takes to make short films. Topics will include screenwriting, hiring talent, production, post-production, and film festival submission. Teens will also view a scene from their upcoming film about school bullying and hear from some of the local teens in the film. For more information, you can call the library's children's department at 508-699-0122. Looking to make a difference? Have extra time during the week? The Literacy Center is looking for you. By becoming a volunteer at the Literacy Center, you could help someone learn to read, study for their citizenship test, learn English, and even help them with their high school equivalency. For more information on how to volunteer or join the next tutor training, you can view our website at theliteracycenter.com or call 508 508- 226-3603. The Literacy Center. Building a better community. Alrighty, folks. Welcome back to the Paul Sugarl Show. Again, we will be here until 5 o'clock. And right now we are joined with Professor Jonathan Chaves from George Washington University discussing his uh, book, Every Rocky Universe, The Yellow Mountains and Travel Writing. Uh, Professor Chaves, what was it like to, to see these mountains? I mean, just looking at the pictures, it, it's remarkable. What, was, uh, what are some of the, the feelings you had actually uh, walking the mountains and, and just seeing it firsthand? Um, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so difficult to put that into words because they are, it's so spectacularly beautiful up there. Um, I think Wang Hongdu himself... Um, gives us, you know, the best idea of what these what these mountains are like in his writing, because that's that's the challenge that he's that he's uh, taking on. And uh, the best thing to do is just read the book Every Rock a Universe, and and let him talk about it. I myself, um, I, in one sense, I was disappointed. One of the famous things about the Yellow Mountains is what's called the Yellow Ocean, Huanghai. This is when mists and clouds, for no apparent reason, come swirling up from below and create what looks like an ocean of cloud in front of you, down below. And by the way, the the term yellow is not with reference to the color of anything. It refers to the Yellow Emperor, Huangdi who is considered to be the founding figure of Chinese civilization, who supposedly came to these mountains and tried to concoct there an elixir of immortality. Um, At any rate, it was, you know, these scenes were breathtaking. One thing about the place that I I, I was saddened by, however, was that the, the Chinese government has decided to turn it into a tourist attraction. <laughs> They've put up uh, a system of uh, ski lift, uh, you know, uh, what do you call those things, you know, the, the little cars that you go up in. Yeah, 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 you, you have a ski lift. It's, uh, yeah. People say on it when they're traveling, kind of moving yeah, through it. Yeah, ski lifts with, with little cars, not big ones, but that hold four or five people, and one after the other is going up to the top of the mountain. So there are lots of tourists up there. Luckily, I was with the photographer Wang Wusheng, and I was able, if you will, to um, see things, you know, with, without being overwhelmed by the tourism. You know, I thought one thing that the listeners might enjoy is hearing one poem in Chinese and then in English. What do you think? About yeah, that? absolutely. Okay, let me read this one poem to you by 
poet of the Tang Dynasty, whose name is Zhang Ji. He lived from 766 to 830 A.D. And I'm going to read it to you first in Chinese and then in English. Here's the Chinese. Dang Yang Kong Sha Ji Xi Ming Ru Yun Yuan Tian Qiu Guang Zhao Bu Ji Niao Se Qu Wu Bian Shi Yin Chang Yun Kuo Bo Qing Pian Xue Lian Jiang Zhou Yao Nan Ce Wang Gu Fu Chang Yan That's the Chinese. I don't know if you could hear it, but it rhymed. And I did a book on this poet Zhang Ji a few years ago called Cloud Gate Song, in which I did attempt to rhyme the translations as an experiment. In all my other books, as I mentioned before, I don't try to do it. But here I did, and this, this one I think came out fairly well. The title is River, Shimmering, Trembling, at edge of sandy wasteland, void and brilliant, entering distant sky. The autumn light illuminates forever, and flocks of birds are boundless as they fly. The river's force pulls clouds across the vastness. Its waves touch lightly snowflakes as they die. Islets in the stream, hard to discover, dark mists, for ages of ages on them lie. That's it. That's deep. <laughs> and that's a perfect example of a Chinese nature poem. And you'll notice this is a pure nature poem. There was not a single image in it indicating human presence. The poet must be present to see it, to see the scene, to experience it. But other than that, it's a pure nature poem written in the early 9th century A.D. In the West, you're not going to get nature poetry until the Romantic movement, in other words, into the 18th to early 19th century. Wordsworth would be a good example. That's beautiful. And, uh, you know, I know we're, uh, we're going to be here until uh, 4 o'clock, but um, I wanted to get uh, um, through a couple more questions. Um, oh, go ahead. For... Um, for an, expiring, for an aspiring poet, you know, I feel like sometimes when people say I major in English or, you know, poetry or literature, you know, they, I feel like there's almost a stigma like, oh, what are you going to do with that degree? You, you know, and uh, so I would I'd like to ask from your perspective, you know, what's some advice you would give someone think, you know, aspiring to become a poet or really interested in, in literature? Um, well, you're, you're talking about someone who is aspiring to be a writer himself. Correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because the one route you can go by getting a degree in, say, English literature is to become a professor yourself, right? By getting a degree in Chinese literature, I was pretty much ensuring that I would become a professor, as I mentioned before, even though becoming a professor as such was not really... Uh, my goal. I mean, I didn't know what my goal was. I was kind of lost in the clouds. As another Chinese uh, poet, Wang Wei, puts it, you know, not knowing where the hidden temple was for miles and miles, I pushed through cloudy peaks. This thing of being lost. And then at the end of the poem, he finds the temple and he sits down and engages in Zen meditation. 
but I was kind of lost and I got sucked into it. But you can go the academic route if you want. That's one thing. If you want to be a writer yourself, which I think is what the primary thrust of your question, it's very, very hard for me to, to give much advice on that because, yes, I do write my own poetry. I do enjoy doing the, tr- the Chinese translations as a form of creative writing, which I think it is, as I mentioned before. But, you know, I earn my bread by being a professor at a university. That's what they pay me for. Um, uh, to actually make a career out of doing your own writing uh, in the world today is, is quite challenging. Um, when it, The only area of writing that areas of writing that really have any money in them are non-fictional books on topics <clears throat> that are in, of interest to the general public, the greater public, or some types of fiction where you're aiming for the bestseller list. But you can open up the bestseller list any week, and you will see that there are three or four writers <clears throat> excuse me, who keep returning there isn't a whole lot of room at the top, you know. So it's uh, it's something where you almost have to have a day job, and then you're doing the writing. Given that, when it comes to doing your own writing, I would say the one piece of advice I would give is read as much as you can first. Don't just sit down and wait for the inspiration to hit. Read the great inspired writers. Not that you are going to plan to imitate them, but that they they did it right. And maybe reading them will help you get in touch with the right way to get out what you have to say. So, you know, read. Read the great poets of the past. Absolutely. In particular, the classics. And go both east and west. It was a great sadness to me, and it still is, that in my Chinese literature class, which uh, you took, um, the students don't know anything about Western poetry. And I kept wanting to make comparisons, and it was very difficult. They hadn't read the great dramatists of Greece, the great poets of Rome, like Horace, for example, the Odes of Horace, uh, Dante, you know, or for that matter, Portuguese poets like Camilo Pisania, uh or Fernando Pessoa in the modern period. Read everything that's good. Absolutely, and, there, and there's tons out there. So, <laughs> um, so uh, what, uh, are there any current projects you're working on or current um, uh, goals that you have that are uh, related to Chinese literature? Or mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, in, in recent years I've been doing more and more work in conjunction with colleagues of mine in the museum world. And once again, there is a forthcoming major exhibition that's going to be held um, at, at one of our great museums. And I'm going to have to be very cagey about this because they're not ready to go public with this yet. Um, and they have contacted me to be a consultant on this project and to... And, and what I usually contribute is because there is such an intimate relationship between literature, especially poetry, and the visual arts of calligraphy and painting. 
they they need a literature person in there who is sensitive to the art to be able to uh, translate and research the background of the literary aspects, if there are inscriptions on the paintings, uh, as there so frequently are. You can go to any museum where, where you are. You can go to the uh, Rhode Island School of Design Museum, by the way. It has a great collection of Chinese art, or, of course, the uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, one of the best. And look around the Chinese painting section. You'll see this writing on the painting. And much of that is poetry, so that I'm working on a, a batch of that right now in preparation for an exhibition that's coming up. Wonderful. That'll be interesting to to see and hear. Yeah, you know, living up here, I've, I, to be honest, I've never been to the Rhode Island uh, the museum over there, and the, even in the Boston Fine Arts, to be honest. Uh, so I'll probably end up taking a trip out there just to see what, it's, uh, what they have. Um, one one little thing that we always try to wrap up our interviews with, and it's a question that um, some of our, most of our guests tend to enjoy answering, and it's uh, I always come up with this because every time any time I meet someone new, I usually ask this question because it's always kind of it's an interesting one. But that is, uh, you know, if you could talk to anyone from history and ask them one question, uh, who would you want to talk to, and what would you want to ask them? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I have no trouble picking the person. If I could meet anyone from history, who would it be? The answer is William Blake, 1757 to 1827. And like so many of the Chinese, he too was a poet and a painter, and he integrated the two works of art in his so-called illuminated books that were almost like a revival of medieval manuscripts in his time. He was a visionary, profoundly religiously inspired, but at the same time <clears throat> establishing his own way of deploying the imagery um, of vision and religion. In fact, in what, at one point, William Blake said, I must create my own system or be controlled by another man's. And something in me really relates to that. In fact, I am constantly being uh, accused by my wife of being too independent, not really, you know, not, not ever listening to authority. Well, you know, <laughs> I think she overstates the case, but she has something of a point there. But Blake was a visionary. I would, I would want to sit down with him and ask him, who or what is God? Yeah. I, I already know some of his ideas on the subject, but I would love to hear him. He sees Jesus Christ as being a personification of the human imagination. The imagination which allows us not merely to copy from nature. We are inspired by nature, but we do not, we, do not, we being artists and writers, I mean. Uh, we, we are inspired by it. We are not merely copying it. Um, we, where does the visionary aspect come from? Where does that something come from in painting and in poetry that is beyond what the mere eye sees? Blake also distinguishes between seeing with your eyes 
and seeing through your eyes, seeing with your eyes what we all do every day, seeing through them to a deeper level. How do you get through? How do you do that? How do you see what we all sense is somehow beyond? Poetry and painting are both of them attempts to get at that. And I think, Blake, if anyone would have great answers. Absolutely. And, uh, Professor, before we go, if, if anyone's interested in uh, any of your books, how can they um, uh, purchase one? Um, all of the books that I've done are available on Amazon. Um, three of my books, uh, three of the most recent of my books, have come out from a wonderful press known as Floating World Editions. And you can go online to their webpage, Floating World Editions, and they have these. This is a publisher that specializes in books about China and Japan from the humanities point of view, literature, art, and so forth, history. Uh, and just go to the page on uh, literature and translation, and you will see these three of these uh, more recent books of mine. Uh, but everything is right there on Amazon. Wonderful. Professor Chaves, I'd like to thank you again for uh, for joining us today and uh, uh, educating uh, the community a little bit on Chinese literature and, uh, and poetry. It was a great, great pleasure, Paolo. I'm, I'm delighted that you're doing this. I appreciate it. One of these days I'll get back down to D.C. and we can catch up. Looking forward to it. All righty. Thank you again. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Again, everyone, I lo- thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you. I hope everyone enjoyed the music, enjoyed our interview, and learned something today. So uh, thank you again, and have a wonderful weekend. Drive safe out there. I see already some snow, and uh, I believe this is the, the more worried about the, the freezing aspect of this afterwards. So stay safe, and uh, check on your neighbors, check on the elderly, and uh, be safe again. So have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Thank you.